Hey, good morning, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful to you for what we've been able to sing. And we do want to say, yes, I will. Yes, I will praise you. Yes, I will lift your name high. Yes, I will live my life for you. Father, we pray that the fruit of this morning would be, yes, I will, lives which flow out of um, out of what your word has to say to us this morning. Father, we pray as we come and we see Jesus again yet more clearly as we spend time in uh, your word considering who he is and what he offers us and what he invites us to find in him. Father, we pray that you would help us in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's grab your Bibles, turn to John uh, chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we are uh, this morning. A famous story of a a woman at a well, and um, we're going to get an opportunity to find out a little bit more about Jesus. So while while you're turning uh, to John chapter 4, as we get ready to read a little bit from that in a moment, um, I I wonder, I guess all of us in some ways are are reminiscing about holidays or nostalgic for holidays and the opportunity to go and travel fairly freely. I I think that's certainly, certainly true for us and that question of will we get to go on a summer holiday those kind of things come into our mind and um but when it comes to summer holidays, there's something about that travel thing, the, the kind of long journey. There's there, there's something about that which is just kind of cool, the sense of anticipation. Um, but there's also an aspect of it whereby there are certain things about that journey which you need to look after. You you, you know, like, when do you stop and when do you rest? And um, and often it's, we're trying to get as far as we can per leg while recognising really you need to break up the journey to be able to get something to eat, to stretch your legs, that kind of thing. And when you do stop, there's that relief of getting out of the car, getting some air, feeling the sun in your face, hopefully, um, and hopefully not the rain, and, and taking the opportunity to do that. And, and, and certain families have certain favourite services. I know a lot of people like TV, for example, they, they would, people would stop there, even though realistically it's probably a little bit of an early, a little bit early to stop there on, on most journeys. Um, but people love that because it's atmospheric and you can get a nice cup of tea and some nice, it feels like home base all that kind of stuff. So I wonder, do you, do you, do you, maybe back, maybe at home, maybe kids, you know this, but have you got, uh, have you got favourite services in your, at home that you spend time with, that you, that you go to every year, it's almost like a family tradition, or, or maybe, maybe you, it's not so much a favourite services, but you have a certain criteria and you, they need to have a KFC or a McDonald's, and uh, maybe that's, maybe that's true of you. Uh, well, well, what we find here is we're turning to John chapter 4 is that Jesus is on a long journey. He's on this long journey. He's traveling from Jerusalem uh, back back to Galilee. And he, so he's really tra- traveling south to north in the region that he that he lived in. And, to get, he, and, really, and it tells us right at the beginning when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he, the purpose of his journey is really to to remove him from the prying eyes of the Pharisees. He, he moves away from he moves away from there in order to uh, to 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 avoid the, the increasing attention and scrutiny that his life and his ministry was under. They, they'd started asking, if you remember back in previous chapters, they started to ask the kind of questions of him that they had of John the Baptist. And again, we're reminded what Jesus said to his mum back in chapter 2. His hour had not yet come. So his move back towards Galilee was reflective of the fact his hour had not yet come. And to, to move to a place of, of greater safety and less scrutiny. It, it, said, it, it then goes on to say he left Judea and, and departed again for Galilee. And verse 4, he had to pass through, he had to, no, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, 
There were a number of different ways to travel from Jerusalem or from Judea back to Galilee. You could cross the Jordan and a number of people would choose to cross the Jordan and, uh, you know, turn right to Jerusalem, cross the Jordan and then head north. That would be what they would, that, quite often people would tend to do that, particularly strict Jews. Uh, because uh, although this was a common route that Jesus was traveling from Judea back to Galilee, uh, it was one that was considered unclean and was mostly avoided by strict Jews. Now, now what we know about Samaria was it was home to the Samaritan people. uh, And the Samaritan people were, in some ways, misfits. They didn't quite fit in. They never quite measured up, particularly when it came to comparison with the Jews or more comparison by the Jews. Although they considered themselves to be Jews, they were treated as Gentiles by, by the Jewish people. So, as I said, they were in many ways misfits and particularly religious misfits. Uh, they were, as a people, they believed that their, their scripture was, was only the fa- first five books of the Old Testament. The, the books are called the Pentateuch, so Pent for five. Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those were the, the only books they considered to be scripture. Uh, another distinction that they had was that they had their own temple on Mount Gerizim, um, which was destroyed in 128 BC on grounds by, by the Jews and the grounds that worship should only be conducted in Jerusalem. They would have been considered unclean by the Jews, hence that big detour that strict Jews would typically take. They, they wanted to belong, but they were banished to be considered second class by the Jewish people who were their neighbours. And, and perhaps in all of that is the clue as to why Jesus it said that Jesus had to go that way. He had to go that way because he came to be the light of the world. He was a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the he he came to demonstrate God's love for the world, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He, 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 is a, he is here to offer and invite salvation, not just to one small section of global society, but to all the world, to all of society, to people like you and me, as much as the people, uh, the, the Pharisees who were scrutinizing him and those who would be making that detour to avoid having to travel through unclean territory. He is, Jesus is here again reminding us that he is a boundary-breaking saviour of anyone who would trust him. So he travels with his disciples until, it tells us he travels with his disciples until noon and stopped at Jacob's well, which is like the halfway point in the journey from Judea to, uh, to, to Galilee. So it was, in many ways it was like the main motorway services for people travelling that route. He was tired, and, and, and uh, he, it, it tells us he was weary from the journey. He was tired. Just to underline that he was fully man, he experienced physical tiredness just like you and just like me. He was weary from the journey. And he took, so he took a seat in the side of the well, and he sent the disciples to go to the nearest town to look for a KFC or something like that. So, and, and so, so, so the scene is set, and so let's, let's just read a little bit from verses 7 to 15 just to see what happens next in order to, to set up and help us to see, see what God's Word ha- would have to say to us uh, through all of this. This is what God's Word has to say to us this morning. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us a well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So the scene is set, as we said, Another person has, uh, has, has just arrived. The, 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 there's a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. That's what we've read. Now, it's important to remember here a few things we noted about Samaritans. They were misfits. They were unclean. They, were, they religiously didn't fit in. And so add to that. So with those things, understanding those things, add into that as well. The fact that she's a Samaritan woman, and it's unlikely that she would have been excited to approach the well. Certainly in doing so, she would, have been, she would have expected rejection and being ignored at best and open hostility at worst. The fact, the fact as well that she was alone there, that she was there alone in the middle of the day allows us to conclude something more. It wasn't just that she was a misfit or a reject or unclean to the Jewish man she saw from a distance or certainly feared that. She was likely all of those things to her own people. That's, that's what had her drawing water alone at the worst or hottest time of the day. And that's actually what caused her so much surprise at what happens next. Jesus spoke to her. Not what she expected. A Jewish man talking to a Samaritan was a no-no. A Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman was cultural heresy. Give me a drink, Jesus says. And her response is this. How is it, in verse 9, how is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from someone like me? In In effect, her question is actually likely closer to, why aren't you rejecting me the same way as everybody else has? We've already seen a couple of weeks ago that Jesus, John describes Jesus as knowing all people and knowing what is in them. And that's true from the Pharisee, Nicodemus, in secret to the outcast Samaritan woman. And it's true for you as well. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And he wants to invite you to something amazing. He looked into the heart of the woman, who is actually way more like us than we would initially imagine or admit. And and he saw her need. And and, And what we're going to see this morning is the four needs that Jesus addresses in her that we share with her and he invites us to find rest in him with. So need number one is simply this, acceptance. Need number one is acceptance. Acceptance through removing the basis of my rightful rejection. Your first need is acceptance. I think we all experience something of that. We all experience, uh, we all, we all would, would have a sense of or a, a need for some level of acceptance, whether it's in community or friendship or love or affection or whatever that would be. So acceptance. 
which the, and in some ways we, we share this in common with the, in so many ways we share this in common with the women at the well. Have you ever been ignored? Have you ever been treated as an outcast or felt like a misfit? Walked into a room and felt deeply unwelcome, struggled to fit in somewhere. And if that's true for you, imagine what her life was like. Close your eyes for a second and imagine even what the journey to the well might have been like for her. Leaving her house with no eye contact from her neighbours. People knowing her story, keeping themselves clear of her and always looking down on her. Used to the silence that accompanies her journey rather than the greetings of friendships and the the chit-chat of time being passed with one another. Maybe, maybe passing the other more acceptable women as they returned from the well, or worse, having to look out of her window, peeking through her curtains to, 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 wait for, to wait to see them return before she knew that she could safely and respectfully begin her journey. Maybe, in fact, the solitude of the well was relief to her from the relentless feeling of rejection that she experienced. And even now, this day, as she approaches the well, she sees a figure in the distance as she comes closer, so she won't even get that relief. But instead of rejection, she finds someone who relates to her in a way that no one has ever done before. Instead of antagonism, she has someone who shows her acceptance. Instead of being treated as worthless, she is welcomed. We experience things we are looking. We experience the things we are looking at this morning, acceptance, and the other things we're going to look at later on. We experience them as felt needs, felt needs. But our felt needs actually point to a deeper, often actually often point to a deeper spiritual and eternal reality. It's a great picture of what Jesus offers us and, or invites us to find in Him. Where the woman's rejection was part prejudice, part poor and sinful life choices, which we will see in a few minutes, acceptance is a significant issue when it comes to our relationship with God. And it's one of the things that makes this episode so striking. Jesus offers you acceptance. But it's not the kind of acceptance that we would often look for. It's not an acceptance that is, that is brought about by him ignoring our sinful choices but rather him engaging those choices and defeating them on a cross. Far too often we we think the answer to our question is for people to sweep things under the carpet for us, but realize there's a fakery about all of that. False relationships don't deal with a problem. We need what Jesus offers, because what Jesus offers us is something real and true. He offers reconciliation with God. He doesn't sweep your sin under the carpet, but came to become a sacrifice for it and a substitute for you in it. Your acceptance by him starts with you accepting your need for him. You need Jesus. That's your, he is your greatest need. He is your ultimate and eternal need. So having your needs met by him flows from understanding that the answer to all your needs are him. That in him is not just the acceptance we long for, but also the source of the satisfaction that our lives show we are looking for. And that's the second need. So our first need is acceptance. 
through removing the basis of my rightful rejection. The second need that we see in this woman is satisfaction through revealing the emptiness of my godless pursuit. Uh, I don't know, whether you, there's lots of different things would make us thirsty. And so maybe it's a good little quiz for you at home. Maybe at home, kids should shout some of the different things that would commonly make you, make you thirsty. Do you come up with some good answers? I came up with a little list of answers myself. Things that, make, things that make us thirsty. Maybe you're still working on that. Maybe you're still shouting some out. Let me just tell you what, while you're doing that, let me just tell you some of the things that, I'm, that I came up with. Um, exercise. Exercise makes me thirsty. Does that make you thirsty? Then maybe you're doing Joe Wicks in the morning. Maybe you're doing some kind of, maybe you've got some kind of exercise routine that you do. It makes you thirsty. Working hard, trying to achieve. It makes you, it's thirsty work, exercise. Or, or heat. Um, I had a little bit of sunburn this week. It's been lovely to have the sun shining over the course of these last last couple of weeks. Uh, the heat, the, the the warmth makes makes you thirsty. That that's it. As you as you perspire and as your body loses moisture, you need to replenish that. And um, so heat and um, my, then thirdly, my my personal my personal favourite eating unhealthy food. This my favourite way to get thir- to get thirsty. Eating unhealthy food. I, I know there's a pattern emerging in KFC, McDonald's, and an unhealthy food and tray bakes at TB, however it is. There's lots of things that make us thirsty. And in some ways, the things that make us thirsty in, in our physical life are, again, a helpful picture of things that make us thirsty in, 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 in a spiritual way. Well, there's exercise that needs to be working hard to be proving ourselves, trying to achieve things for, in our own strength. Or, or, under, or, or in terms of heat, living under, under the glaring sun of life and circumstances. The, the, the way that life just puts a pressure on and the heat on us and, and, and we, we thirst for something more. We thirst for relief from that. Or eating unhealthy food, feeding appetites that produce other and greater needs. Eating in the wrong place, eating the wrong kind of things, feeding our life with things that, are, that, that causes bigger health, spiritual health problems. Lots of things make us thirsty. And it's thirst that is the, the woman's thirst that, that Jesus turns to turns that Jesus turns to her attention to next. The woman says, Why do you ask for water? Why are you asking me for water? Why are you not rejecting me? Why why would you even speak to me? Jesus answered her. Friend, if you knew the gift of God, if you know who I am, you would have asked and been given living water. The woman's response is a classic, classic in terms of misunderstanding, and John uses misunderstanding a lot, and Jesus, it shows that Jesus uses misunderstanding a lot to to to, to bridge the gap in terms of the in terms of the gap between our our very physical thinking, material thinking, and the spiritual calling He puts on our lives. If you ask that He given you living water, her, her response is classic. You, but you don't have a bucket. How are you going to give me any kind of water, let alone living water, if you don't have a bucket? The Samaritan woman this week in Nicodemus two weeks ago showed showed our very human tendency to make everything about the material and the practical. One of the dangers we face when it comes to Jesus is that we consider ourselves, like the woman here, to be in a better position to offer something to him than he is to offer something to us. 
What the woman is about to find out and what we would find out if we would take time to explore is that the thing that Jesus offers us is always, always better. Where do you get this living water, the woman says? Where do you get this living water? Where do you get this better water? I'll tell you, Jesus, this well has some pretty famous history and some big time religious significance. Are you saying to me, Jesus, that you're better, you're greater than our father Abraham, than our father Jacob? Jesus tells her the difference between him and Jacob, the one who first founded this well. If anyone else drinks this water, you will be thirsty again. If you or anyone else drinks this water, you'll be thirsty again. That's just the physical reality. We, we can have a drink of water today, but we'll need another drink of water tomorrow and another drink of water the day after that. We, we are, it is one of our essential needs for our body. But what Jesus is offering is always more. Our body longs for the essentials of our body are things like air and water and food. And in these days of lockdown, we have a fresh appreciation of the need for community and relationship as well, I'm sure. But they're not body essentials the same, but they are essential to us remaining healthy. So our body longs for those things. But what their souls long for, what are the essentials that our souls long for? Well, in some ways, they are the needs we are dealing with this morning. God's word points us towards the sole needs that we have as being a relationship with our creator, security about our eternity, peace in the very depths of who we are. So, soul peace. And Jesus is offering a peace that flows in stark contrast to the drought caused by disappointment. So for those of us who are parched by the pain and problems of life and thirsting for something more, listen to what Jesus says. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what he offers. A spring of water that wells up to eternal life. What what a great picture. Jesus is offering to put something into you and into me that will overflow into eternal life. It will overflow. It or better, he comes to you. That idea of welling up is you don't need a bucket. You don't need a bucket. The water comes to you. That is the great thing. Jesus is the living water who has come to offer you eternal life. He is what you're looking for. Everything else will come up eternally empty. And her response, again, is somewhat classic. Verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Is it possible to get both? To not be thirsty and not have to come back here to draw water? She doesn't see that Jesus is enough yet. Do you? So acceptance, satisfaction, need number three is meaning, meaning, meaning to this whole life, a sense of fulfillment and purpose, meaning through directing me from my hopeless treasure. 
So the woman still doesn't get it. She doesn't get that Jesus is enough yet. And Jesus isn't going to leave this and leave her hanging on this, on her half understanding of the truth. So, so he says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We now get to why the woman might be there by herself. And also see that Jesus is interested, interested in the hearts of those he engages with. Go call your husband, he says. Go call your husband. And the woman gives the kind of answer we might give when we feel guilty or trapped or defensive or all of those things. You know, it, it, it's, it's not untrue, but it isn't exactly honest and straightforward either. I have no husband. But as we saw earlier on in John's gospel, John knows what's in the heart of man. He knows what's in the heart of you. He knows what's in the heart of me. And he knows what's in the heart of this woman at the well. He, he sees through her as much as he sees through her smokescreen. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You have had five husbands. And the one you have, the person you're living with just now, is not your husband. He's pointing to a pattern of sexual immorality that's in her life. Now, having had a few, few husbands could as readily be about health levels at that time and death rates. But even at that, there was a rule of thumb, which was stop at three husbands. In fact, it would have been frowned upon religiously by the religious leaders to have more than three husbands, even if caused by death. Even if the, the end of the marriage was caused by death. And, there was, and, and, and for sure there was a firm no on no, no cohabitation. What you've said is true. But it was something less than the whole truth. And it strikes me how often we are prone to try and pull the wool over Jesus' eyes or carry on regardless pretending Jesus doesn't see how we're living and how we're abandoning him or how we're turning our back on what God's word says. Jesus knows your whole story and he invites you to share it with him so that he can bear it on his shoulders for you. This, all of the pain and all of the pressure and all of the rejection and all of the isolation and all of the vulnerability and all of the hurt and all of the pain that this woman was experiencing was because she was trying to carry these things for herself. And Jesus is offering to take them off of her, to give her new life, to give her that, to, to, to well up within her to eternal life. He invites you to share your story with him so that he can bear it on his shoulders for you. And we start to get a clearer picture of the woman. 
a real sense of the brokenness to go with the loneliness and the isolation that we may imply from her being there by the well by herself. Maybe pursuing meaning from relationships only to have her hopes dashed by death or disappointment or as just as likely a mixture of both. Pinning her hopes on acceptance and satisfaction and meaning and those relationships working out, seeking meaning in, mar- in all those marriages let down by looking for love in the wrong places. And her conclusion about Jesus is growing. She moves from, you're a Jew, why are you asking me for water? To, I perceive that you're a prophet. I perceive that you're a prophet. Again, though, I wonder to what extent there's a sense where she's changing the subject. Like, enough, enough about me Let's talk about you. And it strikes me how prone we can be to ch- try and change the subject on Jesus. Where Jesus wants to talk about our heart issues. Where he wants to engage you with the sin that separates you from his father. And the sin that does you so much harm and hurt in your life. The things that Jesus wants to engage with. And yet we try to divert him and distract him. We want to talk about something else. The Samaritans were were waiting, as we said, they were very much like the Jews and considered themselves to be Jews in many ways. They were waiting for the the prophet promised by Moses, just like the Jews were. If you remember the identification questions that John the Baptist was asked way back in chapter 1, this idea of a prophet uh, promised by Moses was the, 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 one of the questions they asked him, are you Elijah, are you the prophet, who are you? And so the woman picks up on this and says, you're a prophet. It's almost like she's racking her brains thinking, what, what do I know about religion? What do I, here, here's what I know. How can I distract him onto a religious topic? I, I, know, I know that this is what Jews and Samaritans debate. Let's, rather than speaking about me, maybe I can distract him to, to, to debate some nuances of, of the Jewish-Samaritan divide. And often we would rather turn to debate rather than deal with the realities of our walk with God, our matters of sin, the heart issues that affect us. So our question is this, okay, prophet, where should people worship? Where should people worship? Who has it right? Is it Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? The diversion is laid. But Jesus doesn't bite. Women, believe me, the hour is coming when geography will be shown not to matter. It won't be Gerizim or Jerusalem that counts. You will be able to worship God as Father. Now that's mind-blowing for somebody like her who was used to the idea of a somewhat distant God who was worshipped in the top of a mountain. That you would, she would be able to worship him as Father. Jesus is telling her, that's the kind of relationship I offer to you. And John's gospel is clear. It's the kind of relationship that Jesus offers to all of us. Remember back in chapter 1 again, it says, to those who receive Jesus, he gives the right to become, do you remember? The children of God. He offers us the opportunity to worship God as Father. So the, the, the big difference with them ultimately, and Jesus is going to highlight this for the women, the big difference between them is not the temple location, it is God's word. Remember we said earlier on, the Samaritans only held to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so because of that, they missed out on so many of the different signposts that God had provided in his word 
particularly through the prophets, directing towards who the Messiah would be and how he would come and so many things that Jesus is fulfilling. So, So when Jesus says you worship what you do not know, you worship what you do not know in verse 22, and he says we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, when he says that, He's telling her that the Samaritans have missed out on so much of what God revealed of his salvation story in his word. They, they, they had missed out on the signposts that God had given to his sent saviour. That he is not just a law-giving God, but a redeeming and faithful God. Which is great news for a woman who, who had demonstrated a level of marital infidelity, who was caught in her sin and suffering the, the, the immediate consequences of that and the rejection and isolation she was feeling. More, Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. It comes through God's people and how God has revealed the truth about himself to them throughout the Old Testament. And even better, it comes from the Jews because the Jew standing right in front of you, lady, he, he is the answer to all the questions of eternity and salvation and on the theme that the woman brought up and worship. So if you're looking for meaning, he's standing in front of you, staring you in the face. If you're looking for meaning in your life, Jesus is standing in front of you here in John's Gospel Staring you in the face and inviting you to come and find meaning and fulfillment and success, satisfaction and acceptance in him. He's the one who's about to blow all human and geographic distinctions away. The hour is coming. That's what the Old Testament points to. And is now here, literally standing in front of you, staring you in the face. When true worshippers will worship the Father. We will say, well, what makes a true worshipper? Well, Jesus tells us here, spirit and truth. Worship is not a location thing. It is a life thing. It is a soul thing. It is something that wells up from within you. It is rooted in whatever you find meaning in and what you pursue for fulfillment in. It's how we know God and how God shows us the truth about ourselves. Check out verse 23. It says that God the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is seeking. He's looking for someone like you and people like someone like me to offer worship like this. It's a pretty remarkable statement when you think about it. The sense is here of God actively looking, searching throughout his creation, searching our hearts in the process of seeking out people who would set their hearts on him. So the question is this, would you set your heart on him? God is looking around his creation to see whose hearts are captivated by his glory. Is yours, is mine. Our need for meaning guides us and shows us what we worship. We make much of whatever we see most worth in. So who or what is your life directed towards? True worship flows from understanding that you need more than anything else to get your soul to Jesus. That's what you need more than anything else. That is the place of acceptance. That is the place of satisfaction. That is the place of meaning. And as we'll see in a moment, that is the place of eternity. True worship flows from understanding. You need, you will truly worship. You will find true meaning when you understand that you need more than anything else to get your soul to Jesus. 
the woman's response is, I know the Messiah is going to come and he's going to tell us everything. And Jesus very clearly says to her, the person staring you in the face, the person standing right in front of you, the I who speak to you am he. I'm the, I'm, I'm the one who will tell you all things. I'm the one who will show you all things. I'm the one who can fulfill and meet, meet all of your needs. At that point, the disciples reappear. No KFC, but a few meal deals in hand. It says here they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But none of them were brave enough to say what was really on their minds. What are you doing? What's the point? What's he thinking? was really what was going on in their heads. They had the same prejudice and biases. Maybe they didn't want it to be awkward. Maybe they didn't want to offend Jesus. We don't really know why they didn't say what was on their mind, but it was a good thing that they didn't. Now the inclination might be to think that the change in atmosphere is the thing that prompted her to leave. It says, just then, in verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you see? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman, verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So maybe we may be inclined to think it was the change in atmosphere that prompted her to leave, but there's an important clue. There's an important clue here about what propelled her back to town. Verse 28, she left her water jar. She left her water jar. And she ran back to town to tell everybody that she reckoned she'd met the Messiah. She travelled all that way, through all of that rejection, through the heat of the day. And she left her water jar. She, the penny had in some way finally dropped. She'd finally figured out in some way or to a certain extent that Jesus was more essential than water. She abandoned the both and foot in two camps, divided affections that she'd shown earlier in the conversation. And she hurried back to the place, the, the place of her rejection to tell them about her most amazing relationship. Come see the man who told me all that I ever did. In the short conversation, that's not all that happened. But she, that was the sense that she had that Jesus saw through her and saw in her and yet welcomed her and he would do the same for you so she tells all the people and while those people are heading to the well there's a teachable moment for the disciples around the final need we, that we have that we see in the background here our final need is eternity eternity through readying me for what God has promised me eternity through readying me for what God has promised me so the disciples bring out the meal deals, Rabbi, eat. That was their job to look after Jesus' welfare, to make sure that he was well fed and looked after and cared for. That would have been typical of the followers of any rabbi at that time. Jesus' response is this, I, I, I have food to eat. So he moves from water to food. I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples are scratching their heads saying, did somebody else bring him food? They're looking around for the KFC. Did somebody find a KFC? Did somebody do that? Jesus tell them, tells them, the thing that fuels me more than food, more than anything, is to do the will and accomplish the work of him who sent me. That's the food. That's the thing that gives purpose. That's the thing I'm living for. That's the thing that fuels my soul and my being. 
And the disciples are scratching, probably still scratching their head, still struggling to get their head around about this, as most people were until Jesus was kind enough to explain. He says, so just, just take a minute. Look, lift up your eyes. Look, lift up your eyes. Verse 35. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. I want you to pause for a minute. What are they looking at here? What is Jesus getting them to set their eyes upon? Is it him? Maybe. Or is it the whole town that's coming to see Jesus? Are they looking set from their vantage point of the well, looking back in the, the, the direction the woman has departed and left, and are they seeing uh, the people from the town that she's just spoken to who says they've left the town? Is, 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 is it that he's saying to them, look, the harvest is coming? A whole town coming to see Jesus. Do you see that the fields are white for harvest? Already the sower, the one who sent me, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. That's what Jesus is offering. That's what Jesus is inviting and he sent to the disciples. It's already happening. Eternities are changing. And he, my father who sent me, the sower and I, the one who is sent, who reaps the harvest of grace, will rejoice together as those who purpose together the salvation of souls like yours, like mine, like a whole Samaritan town. And he said to the disciples, you're going to get to play a part in this. You're going to get to play, play a part in that. And, and you're going to build in other people's world, you're going to, but you're going to get to play a part in this. When we, you see, when we follow Jesus, not only is our eternity changed, but we get to play a part in the eternities of those around us being changed as we point people to him. The greatest need of every person is to receive help that fixes their eternal problem. Your greatest need and my greatest need is to receive help that fixes our eternal problem. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus is qualified to deal with my sin so as to make me acceptable to God. Only Jesus can satisfy me where my heart is chasing after so many things other than God. Only Jesus can give meaning to this life that I've been given by God. And only Jesus, only Jesus just listen to the testimony of the rest of the Samaritans. It's no longer just because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and we know, we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Only Jesus can offer you eternity. Only Jesus can offer the world eternity. So someone like you and someone like me can only find our need for salvation and our need for eternal peace and through reconciliation with God. That only comes through our relationship with him. He removes the basis of my rightful rejection. He reveals the emptiness of my godless pursuit. He redirects me from my hopeless treasure. He he is readying me for what God has promised me. He offers me acceptance and satisfaction and meaning and eternity. He is, Jesus Christ is, beyond any doubt, the only thing you will ever need. Let me pray. Father, we pray that in these moments and as we thank you for what we've been able to see about your son and how warmly and welcomingly he invites us to to worship and to draw near, how he engages us where we are 
regardless of what we have done, regardless of our past or our background, in the midst of our heart and our brokenness. Father, we, we thank you that we are invited to come and to receive something that wells up within us to eternal life. Father, we pray that you would stir within us love for Jesus in a way that transforms everything. Help us to set aside all of the things which we tend to pursue instead to pursue instead of him. Father, we pray your forgiveness for where we, we look for acceptance in the wrong places or satisfaction in the wrong places or meaning in the wrong places. All the things that put our eternity at risk. And Father, we pray you would cause us to turn towards your Son and receive from him all that he offers us. So Father, we pray you would help us in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.